I pulled out a calculator and I was like, what will it cost me to get out of this business and just go get a job somewhere? And I like looked at the numbers and I was like, oh, that's not possible at this point because I'd already spent all this money on startup costs and on, you know, some inventory and whatever. My next thought was like, these guys don't get to win the bureaucracy aspect of it. Can't just push you around. And so I decided to just like double down. You know, if you're right on something, if you're right about something, just double down, you know, keep doing it till it pays off because it will. Hey, welcome to the business of being. My name is Paul Kasmus, and I believe that everyone is on a path in life. Growing up, I always loved stories that involved showing someone's origins. You know, movies like Kill Bill, Batman Begins, Star Wars, and The 36th Chamber of Shaolin. These stories captivated my interest, seeing the growth of the character through their struggles, challenges, and victories along the way. I speak with entrepreneurs, CEOs, and business owners about their life and business to learn what it takes to be successful and to discover their unique hero's journey. The conversations will enlighten you on the right mindsets for overcoming any obstacle you might face to help guide you on your unique path in business. Today, I'm talking with Fred Barnett, who is the founder and CEO of Anthem Imports and Renegade Imports. Over the past couple of years, Fred has built the largest portfolio of whiskey from non-traditional whiskey countries available in the United States as in importing whiskey from countries other than Scotland and Ireland. Despite a lot of challenges, Fred was able to grow his revenue in 2020 by over 4x his revenue in 2019 by making strategic moves and decisions within his business and now has a presence in 15 U.S. markets and expects 11 more this summer. Fred provides a lot of insight into a very fascinating industry of importing whiskey. I mean, what's not to love? Uh, plus tips on navigating starting a business as a solopreneur and then growing a business despite massive roadblocks and bureaucracy that exist within the import realm. So give this a listen. Very interesting, very fascinating things going on here with Fred and his import business. And you do not want to miss all the great things he has to share. Tell me a little bit about Anthem. Just, I know, you know, the loose story of following you around, but like following you around on the social media, but when did you, I guess, officially get started and what were you doing prior to, to Anthem? Yeah. So before Anthem, I was working for a distributor in Georgia and it was time to go. The culture at the company was just not, it was not where I wanted to be. I'd seen too many of my mentors get kind of pushed out or pushed around and was really having just issues there. And I started to look for jobs outside of the industry. And it's a really fun, the wine and spirits industry is a really fun industry. And it's tough to leave something like that because it's just, it's fun. It's just really cool. You know, if, if you want, like, you know, people ask you like what you do. And if, you know, if I don't want to talk about it, I'll just say I'm in sales. And these days nobody cares. They just don't ask any questions. But <laughs> if I want to talk about it, I'll say, you know, tell them what I do. And then all of a sudden, like the rest of the night, like that's what we're going to talk about because people are just so fascinated by it. So I started looking for jobs outside the industry. And, you know, even to back up a little bit more, I found some brands for my company and, and I had an account that, that knew that about me. And this guy was really quirky. And he asked me one day, like, if I was going to go after a, a Swedish whiskey called McMira, which is right there on my shelf. But he was like, you're going to go after the Swedish whiskey next. And I was like, you know, what the hell are you talking about? There's no whiskey in Sweden. And uh, he was like, no, there is. You know, it's really good. They make it from, you know, Swedish barley. And I'm like, start giving the guy shit. Like, I don't think you can grow anything up there. Like, it's, it's too cold. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. There's no way they don't have farms up there. You know, just whatever. And uh, he starts telling me, no, it's like, you know, world renowned. He sends me all these articles about it. And this was like a couple of years before I left. And, and I'm like, I started reading about it. I was like, well, this is actually like legitimate. They make like 
you know, whiskey that everyone seems to love at the time that had like more fans on Facebook than Bullet does. So like, you know, big established brands here in the US. And I was like, huh. And I ordered, a, had these gift cards from some suppliers. I ordered all these like whiskeys from like, cause I started doing research and I was like, wow, these are like, there's a lot of things like this. And whiskey from like Finland, Sweden, England, like India, Australia, South Africa, like, and they're all like single malt, so like scotch, but like a Macallan or Glenlivet, but they all tasted completely different from each other and completely different from like anything else I'd ever had. And I was like, I was blown away. I was amazed. I was like, how come nobody's ever brought these into the US? And I don't know if you remember, I'd had to order whiskeys to you at some point up in Richmond because they changed like the, the laws on what states you could ship into. And so I remember that. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. And so that was, I was still, you know, doing the distributor thing and, and like I was ready to go, man. Like, at this time and I, I had like no nibbles just like there were no jobs that were interesting I didn't want to jump from distributor to distributor and have to start all over again and one night I'm like having a glass of whiskey from Switzerland and I'm sitting like on the couch just like I'm like this is so good like how come no one's brought this into the U.S. and I was like hey wait a minute like that, there's an idea like let's do that right and so I said to my wife like maybe the next couple of days I was like hey like you know, what if I started an import company and like focused on bringing these unique whiskeys into the U.S.? And she was like, well, I mean, you don't even have a business plan. I was like, yeah. Yeah. So that night, like she was putting our kid down to bed and I like, when I get in the zone, like I can crush it. And I wrote like a business plan that night. I had like a friend had started a business years ago and he had given me his plan for another project, like from years ago that I never did anything with. But I kind of adapted that and just wrote a business plan that night and retooled it over the next few days. And I was like, all right, now I got a business plan. I started kind of thinking about, you know, what to do next and actually like ended up leaving my company early without really this, this thing lined up just because, you know, anyway, I don't want to go into that, but it was, it was time to go. So I left and didn't have anything kind of going and I went and tried to figure it out and got some money together and actually ended up borrowing <laughs> It was less than I needed, but it was more money than I'd ever earned in my life up to that point to start the business and was able to, to do that. So I launched the business in like March of 2018. I quit the job in February. So I tried to move fast, launched in March of 2018. And then like the rest of the year was like two things. One, putting together the portfolio, like hunting down this stuff, stuff I tried, stuff I'd read about, trying to get samples sent out, trying to get licenses and registrations. And that was a big deal. I started applying for licenses like March 5th and I didn't get the last one until October 21st. So it was like all year was like local state, federal licenses, just getting like set up, you know, dealing with lawyers, you know, just getting all that stuff set up and launched with my first distributor in February of 2019. It actually just coincidentally ended up being a year to the date after I left my, my job. So the idea is to bring in these unique whiskeys from mostly whiskeys from places that people don't think about when they think about whiskey. I put together, you know, I made the logo and had someone, you know, edit it, but, and I, I came up with a slogan, great spirits from great places. And that's the idea is I deal with like real people, real places, real products, nothing bulk or sourced, you know, just real good, good juice with, you know, from real producers. Awesome. So 20, 2018 and about a year of getting all those permits. So how, how did, how did that work with, having some permits, but not all of them, did that kind of restrict what you were able to import by country? I mean, I guess now we're maybe, is that having to do with like import laws and tariffs and stuff that I don't know too much about? Well, it's, it's crazy. So like on the federal level to, to import, you need a federal basic permit and, and it's, it's free. 
but it it takes some time to do. And so you, you got to fill out all this stuff and, you know, talk about, you know, things like where you're getting money from and what you're doing and, and any, anybody that owns a substantial amount of the business, because they want to make sure you're not, you know, laundering money or, or you know, it, the industry is very regulated. So there's things you can't do. Like, for example, as a, as an importer, I can't just go and like open a bar, you know, that would be against the law. So like, there's things that you can't do in this country that maybe you can do others. So you get that license. You can't receive samples in the United States until you have that license. So I was handcuffed until then, you know, producers aren't going to send it, obviously gets caught up in customs. So get the federal license, then you have to go get the state license. And that's where things started to get kind of tricky because in, in Georgia, you can't get a state import license until you have an occupancy license from your, your city. And the city wouldn't give me a license until I had a state license. But the state law supersedes the city and the state's like, we're not budging. And the city's like, yeah, well, we're not either. And it's one of those things like the lawyers, I had to get a lawyer involved. And the solution was like a provisional license from the city to then get the real license from the state and then go back and get a license from the city or what, whatever, maybe in reverse, whatever. But, you know, thousands of dollars there just in legal fees, just to get like a license so that I could pay these guys money. A lot of hiccups, but, you know, ended up, you know, being able to get ready to go and launch, you know, in February, one of the, one of the cool things of the modern world is like, I've got this import company, right. But like, I don't have a warehouse. I don't have any like forklifts, ships, like warehouse employees, anything like that. It's all like virtual. It's all shared facilities. It's all like on a contract per case basis. So like, you know, doing this job 50 years ago, I would have had to have like, you know, warehouse and a warehouse staff and all this stuff. Like I've never seen cases of some of the like my most popular product never seen a case of it i don't know what it looks like because it's in the warehouse in new jersey and it ships down the distributor and then they ship it out and yeah <laughs> i was wondering that too of like well like when you said you know the occupancy thing i was like well do you yeah do you have a, a warehouse and store the inventory but it sounds like you're you're kind of you're renting fractional warehouse space and just you're just a master logistics coordinator, project manager, salesperson, all in one to handle where all these moving parts are going to get them aligned so that you just, you, you know, it's this digital machine, but also working physically of from, from producer to warehouse to distributor to end consumer, and you're never, ever actually touching the product. Yeah, and it's even more like, it's deeper than that. So like I use... So what's called a service provider, and they're located in Miami, Florida, and they have a contract to warehouse with this warehouse facility in New Jersey. So I don't even work with them directly. I work with this other company out of Miami that does it, but they also handle all my compliance to ship in each state. You need an out-of-state license. You need to register brands of the state. I just go on and click a couple buttons and they do all the registration for me. You know, make sure all the recording's done for states like New York and New Jersey. We have to post the pricing and they just handle it. So, you know, it's it's expensive, but is it cheaper than hiring my compliance and logistics and operations person? Much cheaper. Yeah, and and not, well, I mean, all the other stuff that, that goes with it, I think it sounds like you're thinking in the long term of like, well, I could hire or do this on my own. And that's always the question, I think, for any business. Like, can I do this on my own or can I get somebody who specializes in it, I, I lose a little bit of margin, but I make up for it in time and just ease of work, all that kind of stuff. That's the question. It's like the time value of it. You know, like I had to change the address recently, which I did for tax purposes because the jurisdiction I was in previously charged a revenue tax on importers. And that's, that's just something I can't deal with. 
So I was able to move to a different jurisdiction in Georgia that charges just an annual fee. And, but it took me a two, three hours online to change the, to change the address. Cause you've got to change it on different forms and do all this stuff for the feds. And it's like, yeah, it's important. I need to do it. Cause it's, you know, trouble if I don't, but also like, is that the best use of three hours of my time? But also like to get my lawyer to do it, is that really worth the best use of like a thousand dollars? So, you know, it's one of those things to juggle. Well, and, and that's always the case too, right? With, with where you're at in your business and, you know, where the business, how the business is structured, what your revenue is, your employees, if you've got any, and ultimately what the, that time value is. And I think a lot of folks probably start seeing, well, you, the first two, three years, whatever it may be, yeah, three hours is probably the best use of your time. But then you get to a point where you're like, okay, three hours of my time or $1,000 of a lawyer. I'm going to go $1,000 of a lawyer just to handle it. And that's a, a combination of you've got the cash flow to support that. You're not necessarily trying to pinch every penny, but you do see the value in just your mental bandwidth and the value of your time. And is it better spent in front of uh, customers, in front of potential suppliers, or just building relationships, literally anything that you can do. Uh, and so it, it's always changing and adapting, I think. But because some people, I think, get way too of that, like, why would I pay? And it's like, dude, you're the CEO and you've been in business for five, 10 years. And meanwhile, you're saying, well, you know, you've, you're always busy, you got no time, but you're trying to do everything. So that kind of stuff, when you reach a point, like, yeah, your time is probably equally what you're billing out to the lawyer. Your time's worth two, three, four hundred dollars. When you, when you really think about it, even though you're not going to see, well, I've made $300 an hour for these hours I didn't spend on that, but it's still there, I think. Yeah. And it's also the question of like, all right, so that's not a repetitive task. I hopefully never have to move that address. Yeah. Yeah. But if it was something I was doing like on a monthly basis, like right now I could, I could pay you to do it or someone to do it and for it'd be a lot less than a thousand. But the thing is, it would take me just as long to teach you as it would be to just do it myself. But on some of these tasks that like, it's something that maybe pops up once a year, once a month, you know, on a more regular basis, then that's where I'm starting to look at like contracting out some of these things. Right. Like what, like getting like an admin assistant or virtual assistant or, you know, there's things you can do, you know, and, and the idea is like at some point I'll hire an operations person to deal with, you know, just the compliance aspect of it and, and the onboarding of, of brands on the onboarding of, we're just getting things queued up for social media, getting marketing materials made, you know, Love to just be able to forward an info sheet of a brand to somebody and then they know what to do. They know, put it on the social schedule. They know to, you know, get all the specs ready for, for shipments. They know to update the website, you know, get the ratings done and all that stuff. So, you know, whether that's on a contract basis or something more permanent kind of remains to be seen. Something I'm really fascinated with in the liquor industry is, and I think this concept applies to a lot of stuff. It's like, the world's best tasting tequila is not the top selling. And anyone that knows tequila, it's almost, I think, turned cliche where people are like, oh, well, Patron, yeah, that's not really that good. Patron's selling a lot of tequila, despite not being the, quote, best tasting stuff. So how do you generate demand, uh, especially with these lesser known products, or how do you just get those sales if you, if, if a buyer, a bar, you know, a liquor store, if they're trying to look at their shelf space of what their consumers want, how does that, how does that work? Or how, how might you be able to influence that demand? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things. One, I mean, the, the quick answer is with craft, it's really, it's one consumer at a time. It's getting you to like it and try it. And then not just try it and like it, but like you want to go back and buy more. 
anybody can sell anything once, but it's not really a sale till you sell it again. You know, and and part of that is you know, making sure people remember what it is they're drinking. I mean, when I was on the wine side, so many times people would walk into the store, say, "Hey, you know, I really love this wine. It was the best wine I ever had." So, okay, what's the name of it? Well, like I don't know. It had like an animal on the label. Like, I don't know, shit, right? So, what are you going to do there? So. With, with my whiskeys, what I'm trying to do is create a category. And that's where it's tough. It's like, I, I pulled the numbers when I started the company. It's 99% of imported whiskey comes from Canada, Ireland, and Scotland, right? That doesn't even count domestic. Almost all the rest of that, though, is, is Japan. And then, like, next way down the list is France. Got whiskey from a dozen different countries, right? As, you know, Finland and South Africa, you know, all over the world. So, like, I'm trying to build a category to let people know that these things are cool. They're really good. And... You know, there's no reason not to try them if you like scotch or like these, you know, just something a little different. And so, you know, I've tried to get, for one, the stores to put it in the right section is key. Partnering with the right retailers is key to make sure that they're pre presenting it to people, promoting it to people, getting their customers on it. It's difficult because in Georgia, you know, where most of the business was done initially, in-store tastings are not allowed. So if you own a store and your customer's like, hey, what should I try? And you're like, hey, try this German whiskey. They're like, nah, it's too weird. You can't, I mean, you can be like, it's one of the best whiskeys I've ever had, but they'll never, if they don't, if you can't talk them into it, you know, or get them to, get them to try it, they, they can't. So it's tough, but, you know, and so just trying to build that category. We've got some things we're doing. We're going to be putting kind of a seal of approval stickers on the front of all of our labels so that people know it'll say an Anthem Import Selection. That's starting soon. And it'll basically, it's a seal of approval. If you like this, try this. If you like this German whiskey, try the Swedish whiskey. It gives people maybe the credence of like, okay, maybe I'm not, I mean, look, I'm selling something that's so limited, even if like it got, it can't get popular. A lot of these whiskeys, I've got some of these, you know, 1200 bottles for the country, right. For the year. So you can't build a brand off that. Right. But what I can do is get you to like that. And then next time you come in that, that bottle's gone, but in its space is something else. You better buy that before that one's gone too. kind of collect them all. That's interesting. And it makes sense. It's like, when you when you explain it that way, it's like, well, that's kind of economics. It's supply and demand, and it's almost like you you've gone into that one percent, and even like the fraction of the one percent with when you're looking at all dozen countries that make up, you know, the remaining imports. Well, you're you're the big you're you know you're the one of the only players in that space, and I and I've seen that you've got the largest portfolio, and so if people are like. Now I want something new and unique that I can't find anywhere else. Like Anthem is it. And so if I see that seal of approval, it's almost like you're building the brand of you yourself of getting these, these things as like a specialty item of something like, hey, it's here today. It may be gone forever. And I'm also imagining like serious Scotch drinkers or whiskey drinkers of like, dude, I've, I've tried all the main Glenlivets, you know, I can't be spending 150 bucks on a bottle but if you're telling me I've got something from Sweden that's really good and, and it, maybe it's similar, sure, I'll try it. Because I think people are always looking for something new and novel. And that's, pro that's probably one of the main advantages. Like, you know, a, a whiskey from Sweden, from Germany, like th that kind of intrigue. And it's going to repel a lot of people. But I feel like there is that really niche group of people that are like, give me everything. And the more rare it is, the more unique it is, the better. And then those turn into you know, your, your long-term customers who are just buying everything you, they see in the liquor store that's got your, your stamp on it. 
Yeah, man, it's been like, you know what it is, is it's like where craft beer was maybe 10 to 15 years ago to where people were like, I want to try this one. I want to try this one. I've never been trying this one. I want to try everything, you know? And I think like people under really like 45, they want to try something new. You know, it's funny. I went into, started the company. I went in to one of my, you know, liquor store that I called on for years as a rep, as a manager across two companies. And I told him what I was doing. And he looks at me, he's like, why? Nobody wants that. And I was like, listen, man. And I showed him a section. I was like, you have, you know, single malt whiskey here, which is what I specialize in. Single malt whiskey here from, I was like, you've got some from Arizona and from New Mexico, from Colorado, from Alabama. I was like, that's no different than what, and I start. I just kept pointing them out. I'm like, all right, you got one from this state and this state, Washington state. And finally he's like, all right, I get it. Let's go taste. So like, I immediately was able to like break down that barrier with him. And like, if you can buy these really cool whiskeys from Arizona and New Mexico, like, why can't you buy one from Finland and Sweden? And, you know, just getting people to try to see like, okay, like this is similar, you know, people are buying, you know, people are familiar with like Sweden, for example, you know, Spotify, you know, we might drive a Swedish car or whatever it is. So like, you know, why not try the beer? Like with France, we drink French wine, you know, we drink French brandy. So like, you know, they're making whiskey there. I mean, they don't even drink brandy in France. They drink whiskey. So, you know, now they make their own. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's similar. And uh, maybe, I mean, if I'm thinking of, of comparing it to the, to the beer industry, it was, you got your domestics and your imports. And then now it's, you've got your, I don't know what they call it, just domestics and then craft beer and craft being anything that's local and maybe regional or whatever that may be. And so if we're thinking, well, hey, here, here's, here's your American Canadian Scotch whiskeys. And then you've got your, all the rest out there. Yeah. Just, just that. I don't know. Kind of, kind the of thought is that like, right. The market is going to this thing where it's like hyper local and then hyper exotic and nothing really in between. Right. So like you want like the brewery from right down the street, but maybe you don't want, like, don't really care about the brewery from like a different, like Southern Virginia or whatever, right. Where you are, but the, also like at the same time, you might really want to try like an Ethiopian, you know, beer. So like, you want that super exotic and then you want like the one that's super familiar, like right down the street, but like, maybe you don't really care about like Texas, you know, for example. So I'm like building that with whiskey where it's like, I'm not building something like so crazy, right. As like you go into a store and it's something that they can't imagine. Like I'm not, I tell people it's not like a, you know, like a, a watermelon brandy that's finished in like tequila cask or something like that. <laughs> what? No, it's, it's like the scotchy drink. It's just made in like the country right across the, you know, the North sea. That's a good way to put it. It's, yeah, and a good way to, to think about it, which makes sense. And it's almost like, I mean, I think some craft breweries have kind of transcended into a new realm or like Fat Tire used to be. But now it's like, I see Fat Tire, I don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. uh, even though that's like, an, like one of the original craft brewery type joints. But I'm much more interested in, oh, here's a brewery from 10 minutes from me. Cool to see it on the menu. Maybe I've been wanting to try it. Or yeah, here's something that that like I'm trying to think of the story behind it. Like this crap, these guys in Sweden, no one knows where they're at. You know, you can always make up a story in your own mind of like of the exoticness. And at least from the ones that I've seen you post, which is a lot, like they all seem to have like fantastic branding labels and logos. They're not overly complicated, but they just they have that, they they fit what they are to me as an American looking at, at that brand as an import, I'm like, okay, that sounds exotic because it's from Sweden or Iceland. 
but it also looks how I'd expect it to look from, from Sweden or Iceland, which I would imagine was from a lot of time, effort, and money on, on the company side of, of creating that, knowing how a normal Joe like me would look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's cool because like the Swedish distillery, for example, you know, they use locally grown Swedish barley. The Icelandic one, they use their own barley grow on their own family farm. So it's like, it's, it's real legitimate stuff. You know, I call it farm to bottle. You know, I didn't coin that phrase, but it, it's useful for what I do. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what is, so if, if, let's say by 2019, you had gotten all these right imports. I mean, what is, in a way, you haven't had like two consecutive normal years. You had 2019, then 2020, and then now 2021. So was there a big difference in how 2021 went or 2020 went with the Rona? How maybe have you adapted and changed with, and not just with those things, but just how any business would adapt and change in the first few years? Sure. And I'll give you real quick, like 2019 wasn't really normal either. I did a, a partnership, a brokerage arrangement. And we can get into that in a little bit because it speaks to what I'm doing kind of next, but that really didn't work out. And it taught me a lot of lessons about where the industry was going, but separated from that at the end of 2019 and then 2020 was really poised for success, right? I'm coming out of the gate, just firing and talking to a lot of people. It was uh, first week of March, 2020. I was expecting within the next few weeks orders from a dozen new markets. People were telling me, I'm going to send you a PO next week. Expect to hear from me next week, next two weeks for an order. All of a sudden, the same distributors are saying, hey, man, reach out to me at the end of the first quarter next year. Like, hey, I can't even think about anything until the end of this year. Hey, like, it, it got to the point, and not just me, the whole industry. It, it's, it was inappropriate for a supplier to reach out to a distributor about a new item last year, for the most part, for most of the year. It was... You know, even if you were trying to sell stuff, it was considered inappropriate to reach out to like, you know, if you to go into an on-premise account and really ask them because on-premise being like restaurants and bars, those places were either closed or pretty restricted. They didn't know if they were going to stay open. For me to go in there and say, hey, you want to buy a whiskey that's going to cost you a hundred bucks a bottle? Like that would have been completely, completely inappropriate. So it was a lot of like, wait and see, wait and see. So the end of 2019, like right after Thanksgiving, I'd hired a you know, I decided, I was like, look, I'm doing everything right at that point, all by myself, like everything, like new registrations for states, like, you know, anything, like a shipment needs coordination, you know, be coordinated, brought in from Germany to New Jersey. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm signing up everything. I'm emailing all the distributors, doing all the pricing, all the programs. It's like, all right, I'm not able to get in the market, not able to see people. I need some help on the sales side and had separated from the brokerage or anything. So, you know, brought in a guy to to help with sales and you know try to get on some new distributors so we started to make some headway you know that ended up not working out and ended up leaving for personal reasons kind of midway through the year but i mean it was a brutal situation it was i'd say it was like march you know march was you know first week was fine and then it was like bam just dead so i start you know understanding like things are kind of weird nobody really knows how long everyone's maybe hoping by easter by june 1st you know by july 4th and Everything's kind of in a holding pattern. I did have like one distributor launch at the end of either April or May. That's a little different situation. They're owned by Warren Buffett. So I don't think the money constraints are as much as maybe you or I would have. But for the most part, it's like radio silence. And I start watching and I'm like one month, my, my revenue went down like 90%. And I was like, oh shit. And then the next month it was down 50%. And then it was down another 50. And then it was another 50. And I was like, 
yeah, like things aren't, this is not ideal, right? And I'm not one to sit around and mope or like, right, have an anxiety attack about it. Like my whole life, my whole philosophy is like, right? Like there's no point in worrying about stuff. Either you can, either you can't fix it and then there's no point in worrying it, just kind of accept where you are and do the best you can move on. Or if you can fix it, just fix it, right? So the problem is things are fucked, right? The market's broken. You know, nobody's allowed out of their house. At, at this point, like everybody thought it was still that the mindset of like, if you touch something and I touch it like three days later, I might get COVID. Like luckily now we know that's not the case. But for a while, like that's what we all thought, right? And so it was like, the stores are closed. So no new items, the items I have, like great. People are drinking more, but what are they drinking? They're drinking like Tito's and Jack and, and you know, Jim Beam, whatever it is. But the store won't let you in and you have to like at the gate, at the door, say like, you know, they're like, what do you want? You just blurt out the thing you know. You're not like, hey, give me like a 96 point rated German rye whiskey or whatever. Like, no, that doesn't exist to them. So like sales are up, but not for crap, you know, at this point. And so I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? Like, I'm not having like, I'm not freaking out, but I'm like, I got to do something. This waiting around for the world to reopen is not, right? It's not going to happen. So yeah, I decided like midway through the year last year, probably like late May, really started to put it together. But to to launch May, May June, a kind of a subsidiary company called uh, Renegade Imports. The idea there was to serve as a, for lack of a better term, a broker, but a brand consultant, you know, brand marketing, building brands for people, helping get them in with distributors. But that the, the beauty of that is it would allow me to build a domestic portfolio one to mirror my international portfolio. So think instead of whiskey from Germany, Finland, and Sweden, whiskey from Wyoming, Illinois, Colorado, Georgia, whatever, right? Mirror that portfolio domestically and then earn revenue without having to outlay any money. You know, I'm not having to write six-figure POs for purchases from Europe. I'm just helping them sell it, helping them sell through at the distributor and then collecting a check for when it does. So the idea was to do that and incorporate some other elements that I'd you know, thought would be useful. You know, the industry itself is very tough. It's kind of a, it's a walled off industry, right? Which means like, as qualified as you may be in any field, like you're not getting a job in the industry unless like you either know somebody in it or you just get incredibly lucky. And I mean, that's just how it is. And the industry has got its own language. It's got its own way of doing things. And, but a lot of it's, it's an alluring industry, right? Like if you, if you won the lottery tomorrow, you probably would think about like starting a distillery or something like just for fun, right? right? But you wouldn't know anything. You wouldn't know how to do it. And there are sharks out there. There are people that would take millions of dollars from you if they could and uh, not look back. And so I decided to start a brokerage agency to help these people navigate and avoid some of the mistakes that I made to work on a success only model. So a lot of these guys, they charge these fees, right? Like they'll charge you like thousands of dollars a month with no guarantee of sales. And then they'll, they'll, they'll mail you bills for like expenses. I got a bill from this guy for his McDonald's breakfast for like gas in states that we had never talked about, things like that. And that's just not the way I think that anything should operate. So my motto is like, if, if, you, if you don't get paid, if we're not selling, like I shouldn't get paid and the people I have under me, you know, they, they won't get paid either. And so I put together this, this plan. I brought on a new national VP of sales in at the end of July, really good guy who's been very aggressive about helping to open new markets and then have brought on a bunch of these domestic brands to mirror this portfolio. And so just 
spent every minute of COVID like where I wasn't chasing my kid around, like retooling the entire business to try to figure out a way forward. Like I write a new business plan every six months. That was before COVID. It's now I'll do it forever. About like where I've been, challenges that have come up and like where I need to go. And that's what I did. I, I just basically started over. It was like, we keep this up in eight months, a year, whatever it is, I'm gone. So no, let's spend the money I don't need to spend and hire a really good guy. Let's start a new business during this thing and come out of it strong. And it's, it's working. So Renegade Imports, is that it, right, right? Renegade or is yeah. there's... Yeah, Renegade. So a GoDaddy uh, sales rep suggested that I, I use that because I told him my name, Anthem, after a Rush song. And he was like, you know what I like? He's like, I like you know, Renegade after the Rage Against the Machine. I was like, that's, that's pretty cool. So I, he had he bought the domain like while I was on with him. GoDaddy, sweet shout out. But... Yeah. Yeah. If I have a huge following, maybe we'll do an affiliate link. Or maybe we'll just do that. And, and... <laughs> right on. But uh, so that that was born of adapting to to covid and that's focusing on those these local or domestic brands now how does that now compete not compete because i think it's a brilliant way to complement your import portfolio but has that now is that which one is is kind of the bulk of your business or are they both kind of growing with their own ebbs and flows or i'm just curious how that now uh, that is like the newer side of it that you've developed how that stacks up against the import side. You know, it's interesting, like, okay, so we've, we've done more business overall if you add up like all the numbers this year on the brokering side, you know, but again, I'm getting between, you know, I let them pick the rate too. So like, it, it just depends on what they're flexible with, honestly. But, you know, in terms of like revenue, it's been a lot less, but that said, it adds to the, you know, it adds to the bottom line without me having an outlay, for it. you know, marketing materials aside you know, meals and things like that aside, I don't send them bills for that. But, you know, the import side's grown a lot. So I, I did, last week alone, we did half, half the business that we did last year total. Wait, last week's revenue was half of last, all last year. Last week's sales, I don't get paid for a month. But yeah, basically I, I launched, we launched in Florida and uh, Texas last week. We got opening orders from them. So that's, uh. it does skew the numbers, but Still, I mean, year to date, we've done year to date, we've done like a thousand dollars more than we did all year last year on the import side, on the brokering side. It's basically all new business, and we've we've done a substantial amount this year. And we've added a lot of value for our customers we've, on the and we've jumped into the wine side of that too. So that's been that's been nice, and that that's given us we're you know it's given us a dozen new distributors that we're in you know started with on the wine side that we can now talk to about spirits which is nice. It's, it's adding value for the customers because now we're all together part of a bigger book, whether it's domestic or, or imports. Man, that's amazing. I love hearing that. So a lot of that from just that it's 2021, but also expanding into new states. And I hired a guy with some really good relationships who knows what he's doing and I don't have to sit and babysit him. It's good. When you hire someone, you want to hire somebody that like, you know, training, obviously onboarding is important, but like, I don't have to hold his hand and say like, okay, now like you make sure you do. No, he just knows, like I check in with him, but like, we're on the same page. He knows what he's doing. He, he does it. And he's, I mean, since he came on, we opened, you know, Tennessee, we opened New York and New Jersey, we opened Florida and, and Texas, you know, we opened Oklahoma. So it's just been like 
quite a few markets. You know, we're expecting orders from 11 new markets in the next couple of months. That's amazing. So is that, that consultancy side, that's still different than the renegade, right? That is renegade side. That is renegade, okay. Because part and, of it is like, I work with people, like good people that they could they could be getting fleeced by somebody else, but we're, we're here, we're helping them. They ask us questions about, you know, whether it's pricing models, whether it's, you know, incentives, whether it's, you know, go to market strategy, how many items to launch or whatever it is. We're giving them advice and it's, it's, it's free advice, but it's good advice because even if we're helping them talk about what to do in another market that they're not paying us for, it's still going to help build that brand out and, and just add cachet to everything we're doing. So wow. we just want to, it's about integrity and adding value. And that's, that's what we try to do. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you'd mentioned adding the value of, of the customer and their experience, but that also comes from just how you've got it set up with just sourcing and selling the product itself. And it sounds like that model just flat out working because you, you get paid when the sale goes through, or it's almost like it trickles up. It's the sale, your wrap, you, and of course, you know, the, the distributor or, or rather the producer, right? Yeah. The, well, the producer gets paid first. So there's no commingling of funds. The producer gets paid first. After they get paid, they pay me. And then if we've got some independent contractors like working the market in those markets, then they'll get paid as soon as we get paid. The idea is to pay everyone quickly so that nobody's waiting around for the money that they've rightfully earned. Right. It's amazing what money will do when you work for it. Like just pay people, pay people what they, what they're worth and, and keep doing it. I've, I've, there's a lot of times it's not happened. Nope. Uh, and I've seen that in the marketing industry as well, or just, you know, talking to friends who have jobs are like, yeah, you know, someone quit, you know, two people, in my department quit. Now I got to do their work. Like we getting paid anymore. No. Well, that's fucked up. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I have a lot of beef with like the traditional business model. <clears throat> it's something I've probably said on the last three episodes or just, the last few weeks have probably said it multiple times, but just, I think Corona has exposed that not the nine to five normal business model is jacked up and people are realizing that they like can hijack your time and, and just, it's, it's just messed up. But if you, when you have a model where you are, you're, you're serving both ends, which is great. Like in you as that broker, you, the, the person producing it needs to get paid. They need to get paid and, and work with someone ethically who can provide value and help them do the business that they love to do. And that's make probably awesome spirits and wines. And then on the consumer side, they're getting that at a great price and trying some new cool shit. And everybody, you know, everybody, everybody wins from that. So I love that. I love hearing that. Is that now the renegade? I, I also saw that you had retooled your business, but that was separate. Is that separate than the renegade? Was there other, adaptations and pivots you've made to Anthem itself concurrently with that other Renegade. Uh, I mean, Renegade's, Renegade's the biggest thing that's in everyone's face about it. And, and really it's, it is like Renegade. I take the name seriously. We're trying to almost, you know, for lack, I don't want to get into a cliche, but we want to flip this thing on its head. The idea is right. The distributors, they don't distribute, they don't sell. They are logistics companies that take a lot of money for sales and they don't really do the sales a lot in a lot of cases. And so we want to work with them closely and help them sell. We want to, you know, engage them directly and market them. You know, every product on the market is good. 
pretty much, right? The, the reason that some of them don't sell are because of, of marketing, because of, of lack of support, because of lack of engagement from distributor. And so where you have these suppliers that are maybe green and a distributor that's maybe focused on their big 10 brands, well, that's fine. We'll get out there. We're going to hold the distributor's hand. We're going to get out there and we'll, you know, we'll meet with them. We'll try to do programming with them. We will get out there and we'll independently get out there and, and work for the accounts and just try to get stuff out there. And if it works great, the distributor's happy. It's that at some point they'll then see the value and take it and run with it. If not, you know, we'll try to find a you know different partner for the brand or you know better fit for that distributor or something that might work. So, you know, we're just trying to find the right fits in the right places. But yeah, it's been, you know, we've we've done a lot of retooling. I started with one distributor in Georgia. I've now got, you know, we have five distributors in Georgia alone. And you know, we're just trying to figure out what fits where. You know, there's some, not everybody's good at everything, right? And the key is trying to to find the the right fit. What does it feel like now? I guess three, three and a half, four years in, do you feel like you've kind of quote made it versus maybe the first year when you're just trying to get these permits and then maybe second year trying to get everything going? Last year, you know, a lot of times John Taffer says this, and I heard it on a podcast, the, the Bar Rescue guys, like revenue will solve most business owners problems. So he said that specifically about restaurants. It's like, if you're making more money, it's probably going to solve a lot of your problems because a lot of problems and businesses are just, you don't have the cash flow for it. So I don't, I'm curious how you feel the vibe of, of this year or maybe the last four, six months versus maybe where you were at the first year or two and kind of what that difference is. If there is a difference, maybe you're still feeling like, ah, I still yeah, have this off the ground. Or maybe that's better. Instead of saying you've made it, do you feel like it's off the ground? It's taken off. You know, the, the metaphor I always use is that this whole thing, right? It's, it's building an airplane while trying to fly it at the same time. And that's really hard to like do that. And that's what I'm doing now. I mean, we've, we've built this thing from nothing. And to the big suppliers who've never heard of me, it still is nothing. You know, I'm a rounding error. The business we do is a rounding error for the big companies. I mean, it's, it's a joke, but for me, it's, you know, it's my life for my VP. It's, you know, it's, it's livelihood. And so we, you know, we take it seriously. You know, I'll tell you the validation has come more than the monetarily is, is the, what we're hearing from the industry. So Whiskey Advocate, which is the kind of the premier publication in the space, you know, they, they've run back-to-back -back features, including our products. So they ran an article in January on the world whiskey category, which is really cool interviewed me for it and then featured a few of our distilleries. In the last issue, they did an uh, article on Nordic whiskey and finished and featured three of our distilleries. So that was really great hearing that. I had the senior editor of Whiskey Advocate tell me that uh, she said my portfolio was, uh, quote, one of the coolest in the country. So that was really nice to hear that. You know, in terms of a business of getting things off the ground, it's, it's, it's crazy because one week will be like absolutely amazing like last week was. And then maybe the week before it was like, what the hell are we doing? Like, you know, oh my God, the, the sky's falling. Like it's, you know, kind of the opposite. And it's very much like touch and go, but it's, it's good. You know, I'm now in that, I mean, you say the, the revenue solves the problems, but it's, you know, it, it may be one of those more money, more problems things, right? But, you know, I'm also in that weird phase where like, I've got, every distillery I work with that I import from is kind of pressuring me for reorders of, you know, Hey, can you, can you bring in this or do that? And it's like, well, if I bring it in too early, I'm sitting on 
a ridiculous amount of inventory. But if I bring it in too late, then the distributors and retailers are mad because they're out of stock on something that they should have. But we're talking about big orders and you know, exchange rates are bad right now. And so it's, it's like, do I wait or do I go? And if I go, it's a lot of money. And if you, you shoot wrong and a brand dies, you're stuck with a lot of inventory that may sit there for a long time and you could have used that money also. Yeah. No, it is it is mo money, mo problems, and it, your problems just change. Where when you're when you're in startup mode and growth mode, it's trying to, like we were saying, you spending those three four hours changing a bunch of legal stuff online as opposed to paying someone or just thinking like I've just got to get the cash flow going. There's there's no better teacher of cash flow than running a business almost on like like paycheck to paycheck and not paycheck to yourself, but like money coming in to then pay people, pay, you know, keep the lights on and seeing, okay, I get paid on this date, this date. And then my expenses go out here and here and just managing it. Well, then you get to a point, okay, well, I'm not quite as worried about that cash flow. That's just now making it work better for me and not making a, a decision that's then going to fuck me later where I've got, you know, I'm giving out these bottles of this, uh, whiskey that's not selling to all my friends and family the next five years just because <laughs> he's got it. And I'll, so. I'll tell you, like, you know, when you talk about that and like running it on, you know, dealing with, you know, money's coming in here and going out with what I'm doing, the, the nature of it and the legal aspect of it is I have money hanging out for a very long time. And sometimes it's a lot of money. Like I'll give you an example is I have to pay producers typically before sometimes before they bottle, but typically almost always before I pick it up from the distillery, right? And that means if it gets picked up and if there's no delays, you know, it's at least six weeks before it gets checked into the United States. And that's with like no delays. And then from there, if, even if you sold every bottle that first day, maybe another week or so to get to that distributor because they've got to consolidate the freight. And then they're supposed to pay 30 days out. They don't pay on time, most of them. Some do, some are great. One guy paid me early, which is unheard of but hey but even then you start adding it up best case scenario you're sitting out there with what could be you know several hundred thousand dollars that you paid it could be five six months if everything goes smoothly before you see any of that money back and that can be that can be stressful especially if you're like i don't know if i should order this and you order it and then there's like whoa <laughs> wow yeah that's it's a long timeline to to work with and i guess with all the moving parts and yeah, what probably look at not just net thirty days, probably more like net ninety. Most so people days. do net thirty, and and most people don't pay on time, but they'll pay within a couple of weeks. There's some you have to chase down. Like I said, there's a guy that paid me early last week, which is really nice. But yeah, even if, but even then, you're rarely selling everything you have on that first day, right? So, yeah, it hangs. The money hangs. Man, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, do you have a good finance person? <laughs> or is that all you it's all loans i'm working on stuff but you know you got to show kind of proof of concept and i think now we're, we're where i can but yeah you know it's it's a fun one but it's a, a lot of stuff going yeah well so you had mentioned the wine part do you think that's where your portfolio would stop because i mean it makes it makes perfect sense what you said with between Anthem and Renegade, you got domestic import and maybe the wine is going to follow a similar model of what is Anthem known for or Renegade. And it's these 
not the big, I think you said big 10 brands or just anything that's more niched, more rare, more exotic. Is that, is that the same model going to play out in wine? And are you going to stop with wine or where, where do you see this going in the next, let's say three to two to three years even? Yeah. I mean, the wine side's nice. Well, okay. I'm, I'm a spirits guy. I drink spirits. I, I don't drink wine. I, you know, I collect spirits. I do all that, but I just enjoy wine is an easier sell. Selling a case of wine is easier than selling a bottle of spirits. It's just the nature of the beast. You can walk in and you can, you can play a relationship, you know, up with an account and talk, walk in there and talk to them about something without even tasting it. They may buy five cases because they like it. It's the way it goes. You know, I never talk about wine with my customers. I'll give them all the details on spirits. Wine is, I think, you know, more far reaching in terms of like, it's probably a little bit easier to build niche of a brand in the wine side, but I'll never import a wine. I'll never import a beer. I'm happy to represent others domestically, but I don't want anything that can spoil. If my whiskey doesn't sell, it sits, costs me 38 cents a case per month to store it. It's not, I'm not going to go bankrupt on it. The wine can, you know, wine and beer, that goes bad. I don't need that in my life ever. But, you know, we've got a really good partner we're working with on the wine side that does these uh, really cool rosé and, and uh, we've done some really good business together. And, you know, looking at some other options, but really more focused on the spirit side, the wine opportunities, if they make sense, we'll look at, but it's really about spirits and then exporting the spirits that we represent domestically is one of the next things. So the, the, we want to use these, not use, that's a bad term, but work with these domestic distilleries that we represented here and export them, export their products to Europe, Asia, and Africa, and really add value for them that way um, to mirror what we're doing here and say, just like in the U.S., like, hey, this finished the sweetest, the German whiskey, like, cool, take it to, take it to Europe and be like, hey, I've got this really awesome bourbon from Dodge City, Kansas, like, you should check this out, a really great rum from Richmond, Virginia. So, you know, there's, there's some cool things we can do on that side. And then another thing the company is working on is, you know, barrel finishes are all the rage these days. So working on kind of facilitating a trade of barrels between whether it's a cognac producer or work with a whiskey producer or, you know, wine and a, um, and a, and a, and a you know, spirits producer as well. And just try to, you know, build that kind of, you know, cooperation or for lack of a better term, synergy between the portfolio. It's amazing. And that, it's funny how, the reflection, I mean, you said mirror, and that's exactly what it is. It's like, you, you take that model and then now, okay, not important, we're also gonna export. I mean, I gotta imagine in some of these bigger, in these countries that are, you know, maybe producing a lot of whiskey, you mentioned, you know, like Scotland, Ireland, Japan, well, they probably have a lot of whiskey drinkers just by the nature that they're probably curious, like, oh yeah, let's try like some of these American brands that isn't, Jim Beam, Jack Daniels, and whatever else it may be, and and suddenly you're you're now looking at a, a massive, you know, the global market of, of these folks, and it's almost like, I guess, yeah, the sky's the limit. I think that's the beauty of the niche, and and, and kind of, you know, and we haven't even really talked about like the marketing aspect like too much. I mean, I love, I'm super curious like how that worked, and we talked about that earlier you know, that demand side and the sales, but it's, I think fundamentally for any business, if, if you've got a niche and you know, this is what I'm good at and this is what I do, it can then be applied to kind of parallel products, if that's the right term and expanding into markets, like dude, and not just your business, but it's like, Hey, you want something 
that you can't necessarily find go to Fred. And that can be in the domestic whiskey, it can be in wine, it can be, and it can be imported stuff that you've never seen before. Fred's a guy, and I think that the testament to that is, is Whiskey Advocate. It's like, dude, we're just going to talk to this dude. He, he, he knows what he's doing. And then that kind of stuff goes so far. I mean, that's why people pay PR firms. That's why people have, you know, massive marketing budgets to get that kind of awareness. And it's just kind of going out, out in a different route. And, and, it, and it wouldn't happen if it's not, if, if you weren't focused on it, if you weren't, you know, just knowing like what you're doing and why. So, you know, started, it's kind of out of desperation. Like I was in a situation, I was trying to get out of the job I was in. I had applied for a few jobs. There were really not a lot that came up. I got one interview out of it, which turned out to be, you know, it was a vaguely worded position online for a really good company. Did an interview with this guy and it turned out it was a on-premise gay multicultural accounts, key account manager, which on-premise is not something I'm comfortable with. Multicultural, they probably weren't looking for somebody that necessarily looked like me and, you know, gay is, is not, I don't know those accounts. So. It was, you know, it was kind of a farce. The one interview I, I got was, you know, definitely not, I wasn't going to get it no matter how well I did at the interview, but was really just looking for, you know, something I couldn't find. And I thought, you know what, like, I'm just going to build it myself. And that was, that was the key is if I can't find what I'm looking for, I need to do something and I need to get out of here. Let's just build my own thing. So I did. In terms of why whiskey, I mean, I don't know. It, it was something I was interested in. You know, I like to try new and unique things and, you know, jump down the rabbit hole of like, what's this? You know, why is this different? You know, whiskey, single malt whiskey has a couple of ingredients. It's barley, yeast, and water. And if it's peated, it's got peat and that's it. So how does something with three different ingredients taste completely different if you make it here versus there? And I was fascinated by that and you know, started doing a bunch of research and ended up, you know, collecting whiskey and getting into it. And then when I found like a super unique niche that like nobody had really explored, there, there are a couple other companies that do what I do, but, you know, nobody's heard of them just like no one's heard of me. And so it was kind of, uh, why not? Let's try it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's this Instagram I saw, which I don't think you're on Instagram, right? I am, but I, obviously not enough of a presence. Well, I'll share it with you because it's this dude, like kind of at like a smallerish party. It's hard to tell how old he is. He could be in college, but he has this like thick mullet. And he's like, you know what? Everyone talks about doing cool shit until it's time to do cool shit. And I'm like, dude, this guy's my hero. Cause I like, I, and I, well, I think that's what, why that's relevant for here is everyone talks about starting a business until it's time to start a business, you know? It's fun to talk ideas, drinking with your friends, hanging out. But then when you get into it, you're like, fuck, this is not fun. You know, it, what you described of your whole permitting thing, you know, I, I did that. I dealt with that on a small basis. And, uh, you know, with my first business of like, there's a whole checklist of things that I need to get permitted or, or done in order. And I just, and I called it, it's like the most unfun scavenger hunt ever. Or if you're thinking of like Zelda, when you're doing that trading game to get the master sword, that's a lot of fun. But take that concept of trading and doing this, that, and the third in the, in the most frustrating way possible. And then attach the fact that your livelihood's on it. It gets real, real quick. And so I, I, I just, I, yeah, I think that's amazing. Cause it's not, it's like, well, you, you know, you love spirits and you're, and you're like, well, I want to get out of this company, but 
yeah, I just think that some people have got and got that thing of like whatever that drive is, and that's like whatever it, it takes. And not everyone needs to be a business center. Being a business center kind of sucks, like a lot of times. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're your own boss, but I kind of suck as a boss. Or, yeah, I can take time off, which is never because I got to get this working. Maybe in like five years, yeah, I can go take a month off if I want. But 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 a lot of people don't ever reach that. So yeah, I think it's I think it's amazing. You're not your own boss though, right? You're always working for your customers, for your producers, for your stakeholders. You're always, I mean, that, that's the thing. And that's that's true anywhere. But, you know, and, and to your point on a vacation, man, if I take a vacation, I come back and it's not good. You know, I am like crazy behind. If I, if I like, I went down last year, my back, I blew up my back and was out for like a couple months. And it took like a ridiculous amount of time to get to where like I could, you know, and even I was like laying on the floor doing emails when I could, but you, you miss like a day as a business owner, it's trouble. I got everybody calling me for everything and, and it is what it is, but it's, it's fun. You know, it's sometimes you just have to, you just have to build something. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you too, on the, the regulatory side, like what you're saying about that scavenger hunt, I mean, that's completely true and, and going through this, and I don't have an administrative brain. Like it, it doesn't, you know, my, everyone's good at bad at certain things my brain does not do certain administrative tasks at all and it cannot it's very tough so i was going through the process and doing this with someone to help a lawyer some of my own there was a point where they kept wanting like all this ridiculous stuff to get this occupancy license and going back and forth and having to draft like a fake like rent document to myself is what they wanted me to do and like I've got one thing where like one revenue agent is telling me to just basically like put down something that's not true. And the other government agent is like, oh, no, don't do that. And I'm like, well, what? And there was a point where like probably five months in, four months into the business, I like I got so frustrated. I like, so I literally like put my head down on the desk and just started like shaking my head. And it was just what the fuck? Like, I pulled out a calculator and I was like, what will it cost me to like get out of this business and just go get a job somewhere? Like, and I like looked at the numbers and I was like, oh, that's not possible at this point. Like, you know, cause I'd already spent all this money in startup costs and on, you know, some inventory and whatever. And then I was like, my next thought was like, these guys don't get to win. Like I'm not, you know, they can't like, you know, the bureaucracy aspect of it can't just push you around. And so I decided to just like double down, you know, if you're right on something, if you're right about something, just double down, you know, keep doing it till it pays off. Cause it will. They love that. Absolutely love that. Well, we're a few minutes over, but I think we got some great stuff today, dude. We really appreciate you chatting with me today and, and pumped to see, yeah, pumped to see where it goes. So thanks, thanks again. But I wanted to just speak one thing on like COVID numbers and what that's done in the country. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So like, I'll just give you an example of like how things and how the market and craft spirits in the United States has changed since COVID started. You know, New York City, which is probably number one or number two craft spirits market in the whole world, right? You know, maybe London's bigger, maybe it's not pre-COVID, but I recently got opening orders from New York and New Jersey, and then also from just the distributor that covers Middle Tennessee. So like, you know, just Middle Tennessee, Nashville. And my Tennessee order was three times the size of New York and New Jersey combined. So just to like, if you want to think about like what COVID has done to a market like that where everyone's out in bars all the time and drinking and trying new things to where basically everybody kind of fled south or east or sorry south or west to like go stay with friends or relatives for a few months and 
just like get out of that area, you know, that's what's kind of happening. So you're looking at like, if you'd have told me like Tennessee is going to be three times the size of New York and New Jersey combined, or same thing, California was the same size as Tennessee, was middle, of middle Tennessee, which itself was three times the size of New York and New Jersey. Like you'd never think that the market would just shift like that. And that's, you know, one thing we dealt with last year. I'm trying to figure all that out for what that looks like going forward. Is that permanent? Is it semi-permanent? What does it look like? That is interesting to see how those numbers reflect that. I mean, I know that was a thing. Like, you know, Chris moved down to, spent the summer in, in Raleigh. Yeah. As I, I know, a lot of a lot of New Yorkers were, were kind of getting getting out of Dodge. So I'm curious how that might change, you know, as things are, are opening up. And then it's almost like you might be sitting on, a, you know, a ticking time bomb in the best kind of way where, okay, vaccines, people are moving back to New York things are opening up and then suddenly you're like oh this is amazing because what was always there and and in the best city for this type of thing it's i feel because yeah it's almost like shit like my best opportunity is not there because of, of this but you like still found those people in the most unlikely of places like tennessee